Have you ever gone through a, a, a hard time in your life when it has really made you wonder if God is really there? You know, have you faced a, a trial that has been so hard that it's made you feel as if God is, is way up in the distance somewhere? I suspect most of us probably have. Uh, you know, a time when we've had a, a particularly painful relationship breakup, when one of our, our family members has been uh, diagnosed with a serious illness, and when we've lost our job and we can't find another one. Uh, the girl on the screen, her name is Anison, Alison Lev, as a photo, I think. Uh, she's a 24-year-old Vietnamese girl. Uh, last year, she, she graduated from uh, Yale University uh, with a medical uh, degree, and she got a job as a, as a medical researcher. Uh, she was actually due to be married on the 19th of September last year. Uh, but on that very day, she was due to be married, her body was found choked to death, and stuffed in the wall of her medical research lab. Now, if you were her husband, or her husband-to-be, how would you feel? Would you wonder whether God had maybe taken a holiday? What's the sort of purpose in suffering like that? When life is going well, most of us won't find it too hard to trust in Him. But what about when the hard times come? How can we go on trusting God when all of these struggles, these, these meaningless, it seems, trials are going on all around us? What purpose could there possibly be in all of those things? If God is there, why does he allow them? Or is God really there at all? Well, over the past few weeks we've been uh, following the life of this uh, conniving, deceitful uh, Jacob. Jacob, who stole the, the blessing of the inheritance from his brother Esau. Uh, that inheritance that included the, the great promises of God, of, of land, offspring, and blessing that God had given to, to Abraham. So these, these blessings that were going to, uh, to reverse the curse of the fall, to bring people back into a relationship with God. But having stolen these promises, Jacob was forced to flee. And it was there as he was in his fear, that God had appeared to him at Bethel and made this promise to him on the screen, Genesis 28 verse 15, Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. God had promised to be with Jacob, to fulfill all of his promises, to bring him back to the promised land but we've been following what's happened since that time, haven't we? You know, he'd been tricked by his uncle Laban into 14 years of hard service. And they haven't been happy marriages either. The, the wives have been fighting and competing with each other for their children. And he's been living in a foreign land, exiled from his brother. And he doesn't even have a single sheep to his name after 14 long years. So much for the promises of God. So far, Jacob's life just seems like one big long curse. If God is with Jacob, what's the point of all of his trial too? Well, we pick up the story, we're at Genesis chapter 30 and verse 25. Please uh, uh, read along with me. Genesis chapter 30 and verse 25. As soon as Rachel had 
had warned Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, Send me away that I may go to my own home and country. Give me my wives and my children whom I have served you, that I may go, for you know the service that I have given you. Oh, now that Jacob's favourite wife, uh, Rachel, has had a son, Jacob suddenly has itchy feet. He wants to, to go back to his hometown. And uh, this verse actually reminds us, right at the beginning of the story, that it hasn't been a story entirely of misery. <laughs> Amidst all the trials, at least, God has been keeping his promise to give him many offspring. And so Jacob is now turning to the other promise, that God will bring him back to the promised land. But going back is not going to be quite as easy as it was to leave. So he's been serving Laban. He's been really a slave to Laban. And Laban wasn't about to let him just go like that. Verse 27. Laban said to him, If I have found favour in your sight, I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Name your wages and I will give it. Laban knew that Jacob was too precious to lose. You know, the phrase learned by divination here is probably more like the footnote, which says that he got rich. I think that fits it better. See, God's rich blessing had overflowed onto Laban. And Laban knows it. So he politely requests Jacob, why don't you extend your contract? Name your wages. But Jacob, of course, thinks that God's blessing should at least count for something. Uh, verse 29, Jacob said to him, You yourself know how I have served you, slaves for you, how your livestock has fared with me. For you had little before I came, and it has increased abundantly, and the Lord has blessed you wherever I turned. But now when should I provide for my own household also? I don't know what you think of when you think of uncle, but I don't think this is the, the kind old uh, Uncle Laban that maybe you have for your uncle. Uh, Laban wants him to stay. And what has he actually done to his son, his son-in-law? Well, he's really made him a slave. So if Jacob's going to have to leave, going to leave, he's going to have to work for whatever he's going to take with him. Verse 31 to 33, Jacob decides to just play him at his game. He proposes a deal. Uh, the deal is basically he will stay, he will you know, take care of the flocks, he will look after them, uh, so long as he gets to keep all of the, you know, the spotted and speckled, speckled the, the multi-coloured sheep. Uh, and since normally most sheep are white, most goats are sort of black or dark brown, uh, and the, the multi-coloured ones are pretty unusual, this is kind of like a, a deal that's pretty too good to, to refuse. Laban rushes in to accept, and... He's going to get to continue to enjoy God's blessing and Jacob's probably going to get, well, not really much out of it at all. At least that's what he thinks. And just to top it off, it seems like Jacob didn't uh, read the fine print, so Laban goes, verse 34 to 36, and just removes all of the, all of the multicolored sheep that were there at the beginning, so he'd have to start with nothing. Well, what would be the outcome of this kind of contest of the two deceivers. Well, Jacob has a plan, a very interesting plan. Follow along with me and then let me tell me what you think of it. Verse 37. Then Jacob took fresh sticks of poplar 
and almonds and plain trees and peeled white streaks in them, expressing the white of the sticks. He set the sticks that he peeled in front of the flocks in the trough, that is the watering places where the flocks came to drink. And since they bred when they came to drink, the flocks bred in front of the strips, and so the flocks brought forth stripes, speckled and spotted. And down to verse 41. Whenever the stronger of the flock were breeding, Jacob would lay the sticks in the trough before the eyes of the flock, that they might breed among the sticks. But for the fever of the flock, he would not lay them there. So the fever would be laden, and the stronger taken. Now tell me, what do you find a little bit strange about those verses? Nothing strange? Oh, very quiet this morning. <laughs> How about the fact that Jacob manages to produce multicoloured sheep simply by putting little sticks for them while they're while they're while they're breeding? I haven't normally seen that work. Is that even scientifically possible at all? <laughs> now, most people at this point will spend the rest of the sermon talking about the scientific possibilities of that, and they will miss the point because there's actually something else that's very strange. Did you pick it up? There's absolutely no mention of God in that whole section. No mention of God telling him to use the sticks. No mention of God blessing Jacob. Even the success is attributed to Jacob and not to God. Do you see that? Verse 43. Thus the man increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants and male servants and camels and donkeys. Now, if God was meant to be with Jacob, then why is God suddenly absent from the passage? Well, we're going to deal with those two issues in a moment. So I just want you to notice one thing uh, to start with. Despite his seeming absence here, God's promises to bless Jacob are coming true. As Abraham before him and his descendants that will come after him in Egypt, Jacob is flourishing in a foreign land. See, already the picture is starting to emerge. God is the God who keeps his promises, who keeps his promises even when hardship may be all around, who keeps his promises even when he might seem to be absent. Well, to understand it, we have to actually keep reading the story. So let's do that. Jacob, uh, Jacob's victory you know, in this kind of battle of the wits uh, has not been out without cost for him. We read about that in verse 1, chapter 31, verse 1. Now Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's, and from what our father's he has gained all this wealth. And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favour as before. His understatement of the year. And then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. Jacob is in trouble again. And yet again he's in trouble for stealing, uh, even though he was actually honest this time. And in his weakness, again, we see God appearing to Jacob and reminding him again it's time to return to the promised land just as he had promised. 
And look at the change in Jacob. Remember last time? He was bargaining with God about the whole thing. What did he do this time? Well, he goes out immediately to go and get his wives and try and convince them to come with him. And, and his speech is just ringing with talk about God's presence and God's blessing of him. See, like verse 5. Your father did not regard me with favour as he did before, but the God of my father has been with me. Verse 7. Your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times, but God did not permit him to harm me. Verse 8. Your, your father kept changing the terms of the agreement, but verse 9. God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. And before God was completely absent, now God is completely everywhere as Jacob retells the story. Jacob's interpretation is that the whole success of the breeding process was actually because of God. It was all because God had been with him. It's in verse 11. Then the angel of God said to me in a dream, Jacob, and I said, here I am. And he said, lift up your eyes and see. All the goats that mate with the flocks are striped, speckled and mottled. For I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land and return to the land of your kindred. It wasn't some sort of magic stick <laughs> that made the, the sheep turn into multicoloured sheep and goats. This was actually the loving providence of God. Far from being absent, God had been present with Jacob all along, just as he had promised, keeping his promises and blessing him. And the fact is not lost on his wives either. Verse 14, Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, Is there any portion or inheritance left with us in our father's house? Are we not regarded to him by him as foreigners? For he has sold us, and he has indeed devoured our money. All the wealth that God has taken away from our Father belongs to us and to our children. Now then, whatever God has said to you, do. There is nothing left for them with Laban. God has taken away all of his wealth, and he has given it to Jacob and to them. You see what has happened here. Jacob was a deceitful, conniving cheat. But he emerges after 20 long years of hard service and discipline with a growing faith in God, honesty in his character, obedience to God's commands, witness to God's presence and God's protection and trust in God's promises. He's far from perfect. But do you see, those trials were actually God's grace to Jacob. Through all of those trials, God was using them for his good, to grow, to strengthen his faith in him and in the promises. In the same way, God may indeed take our path through paths of suffering in our life. In our suffering, we must not lose sight of the goodness of God, 
Just because he seems absent doesn't mean he has abandoned you. Quite the contrary. God is perfectly in control. He uses trials to bring about in us holiness and righteousness that we might be changed people, that we might learn to trust him just like Jacob had to. Uh, Hebrews chapter 12 on the screen says this, Our fathers disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good. Why? That we may share his holiness. For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness for those who have been trained by it. What is even more encouraging is that God doesn't let the cheat get away with it in the end. God makes sure justice is done in the end and you see that with Laban, don't you? He may have cheated for 20 years but his exploitation leads to him having nothing in the end because God changes the table. Well, with his wives on his side, uh, all that really remains is for him to leave and to go back to the promised land. So he waits for the opportune time and then he does it. Verse 19. Laban had gone to shear his sheep and Rachel stole her father's household gods. And Jacob tricked Laban, the Aramean, by not telling him that he intended to flee. He fled with all that he had and arose and crossed the Euphrates and set his face towards the hill country of Gilead. Uh, again, this sort of theme of stealing emerges in the story again. Uh, Jacob tricks Laban. Uh, it's literally he steals the heart of Laban. And in an interesting twist, uh, Rachel also steals her father's household gods, uh, or literally worthless things. But they're about to cause a very big threat to Jacob and his whole estate plan. Uh, in a moment, Laban comes in pursuit, and when Laban eventually catches up with Jacob, we see God again intervening, God graciously entering the story on Jacob's behalf. Verse 24, God said to Laban the Aramean in a dream by night and said to him, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And what follows is we've got Laban's great over-the-top speech. Why did you run away? I would have given you a farewell party. You know, we would have had dancing and singing. It would have been great and wonderful. You know, I'm such a good guy. I'm so, such a generous uncle for you. The fact of the matter is, of course, that if God hadn't intervened in the dream, Laban would have brought Jacob back as a slave. But that God was on Jacob's side. So instead, we see Laban raising the more stickier issue of his mislaid idols. In verse 30, Laban says, And now you have gone away because you have longed greatly for your father's house. But why did you steal my God? Jacob answered and said to Laban, Because I was afraid, for I thought that you would take your daughters from me by force. Anyone with whom you find your God shall not live. In the presence of our kinsmen, point out what, that is, what is yours and take it. And Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. Well, the search begins. Verse 33. 
Laban went into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent and into the tent of the two female servants, but he did not find them. And he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel. Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in the camel saddle and sat on them. Laban fell all around the tent, but he did not find them. And she said to her father, Lord, let, let my Lord not be angry that I cannot rise before you, for the way of the women is upon me. So he searched, but he did not find the household gods. Well, Rachel deceived her father, just like Jacob did his. And as she sits menstruating on top of these idols, the already foolish Laban just looks absolutely ridiculous. Now what are we to make of these uh, funny household gods? Why did Rachel steal them in the first place? Now is it just to spite his, her father? Uh, I think that's probably pretty unlikely. What's more likely, I think, is that these are some kind of insurance policy. You know, if Jacob's God failed to deliver on the promises, then maybe these gods would be able to be a backup plan just in case. It sounds pretty stupid, doesn't it? I mean, these gods couldn't even protect themselves from being stolen, let alone anything else. Everyone agree? Well, let me ask you, do we have our own household gods? Insurance is pretty popular these days, isn't it? Uh, in today's society, you can get insurance for just about anything. You know, car insurance, house insurance, health insurance, life insurance. Brian was telling me last night that uh, I'm told that Angelina Jolie even went out and got bum insurance. A few weeks ago, I was in Taiwan. Uh, I got into a conversation with one of my friend's mums. She told me she believed in Jesus. She was a Christian. But as I walked around her house where I was staying, I noticed that the house was full of not just crosses, but statues of Buddha, a shrine for her ancestors, pictures of her Hindu gods on the walls. And when I asked her about it, she said she gave devotion to all of them, just in case. Have you taken out a God insurance policy? Now just in case Jesus doesn't deliver. You know, have just had a couple of kitchen gods in the kitchen, a statue of Buddha in the garden, a shrine for your ancestors in the living room, or a picture of Mary hanging up the wall to help us out. Now of course by household gods I just don't mean the, the physical idols like them. They're rough enough in Malaysia, aren't they? I mean, anything that we will rely on, trust in, just in case, just in case Jesus doesn't deliver on his promises. Perhaps something like money. Now, I'm well aware that money is a touchy subject in Malaysia, but to be quite honest, I don't care, uh, because Jesus cares about the subject, and I say I think it's good for us to talk about it this morning. Friends, it is an understatement to say that materialism is just the air that we breathe in in Kuala Lumpur. I mean, how many shopping centres do we need? 
And how much time do we need to spend shopping in them? Oh, okay, let me put it in another way. Okay, if that doesn't sell it. How much time do we need to be spending thinking about how much money we're going to need for our marriage? How much money we're going to need for our next holiday? How much money we're going to need for our retirement? Now, I'm not saying it's wrong to have money or to buy stuff. 1 Timothy 4 verse 4 says, All, all things God created are good and to be received with thankfulness. But it's not right to accept money's deceptive offer of security, of salvation, of satisfaction, of enjoyment in life. Just in case Jesus doesn't quite deliver. What God, do you remember what Jesus said about money in that New Testament reading? No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one or love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Is money your household God? How do you know? The best way is to ask the question, can I do without it? Are you generous with your money? I mean, are you generous with your money to the extent that it hurts? If you can't be generous, if the prospect of having a zero bank account balance just is unbearable, then maybe, just maybe, money is one of those little household gods sitting in the corner of your life. God alone is the true God. God hates idols, worthless things that can't speak, that can't move. What a wickedness it is to so mistrust the loving, promise-keeping, gracious God who is with us by taking out an insurance policy on another God. That's you. Repent now. Throw the worthless idols in the bin or beware of the coming wrath of God. Well, with the household gods not found, suddenly Jacob is on the moral high ground here. And he sees his vindication, it's a vindication of the last 20 years of anger, and he presses burst out in this big spit of angry frustration to Laban. Now verse 36, Then Jacob became angry and berated Laban. Jacob said to Laban, What is my offence? What is my sin that you have so hotly pursued me? For you have felt through all my goods. What have you found of all your household gods? Set it here before me and my kinsmen and your kinsmen that they may decide between us two. Verse 41. These twenty years I have been in your house. I served you fourteen years for your two daughters and six years for your flock and you have changed my wages ten times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labour of my hands and rebuked you last night. Throughout all the struggles, all the pains of his two marriages, all of Laban's deceptions, you see Jacob's conclusion. God had been on his side. 
God had blessed him. God had guided him. God had protected him. And now God had vindicated him. Laban, like one of those selfish little children, verse 43, Laban answered and said to Jacob, The daughters are my daughters. The children are my children. The flocks are my flocks. And all that you see is mine. You're right. But what can I do for all these my daughters or their children which they have born? Come now, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between me, you and me. After all that's happened, Laban still refuses to concede. The daughters, the flocks, the whole lot, they're Jacob's. Laban thinks he's the victim in the story. How ridiculous. But that is the deceitfulness of sin, isn't it? It hardens us so that we can become blind even to the faults in our own lives. And sadly, many of us are perhaps just like Laban. We go through life rejecting God, mistreating others, that our pride makes it seem like actually we're the good guys. We need to actually realise our sin before God, our need for forgiveness, before our heart becomes so impenetrably hard like that of Laban. The cheek of Laban is that after all that's happened in verse uh, 44 to 53, it is him who insists that Jacob has to look after his daughters and him that insists on this covenant so that they will, uh, so that Jacob won't come and harm him. It's just absolutely ridiculous. But that is what sin does to us. Well, it's time to wrap up. It's, uh, we've been through this bizarre story of uh, multicolored sheep, uh, deception, household gods, and family feuds. Uh, but to really see the significance of this story, we have to see it in its, its wider biblical context. We have to think about a point two there, the Exodus and the New Exodus. Because in so many ways, this story actually prefigures the Exodus of Jacob's descendants in the years that will follow. So like Jacob, Israel goes down to the house of slavery and multiplies. Like Jacob, Israel leaves in response to God's call and are delivered by divine intervention. Like Jacob, Israel will leave Egypt with the spoils of Egypt. Like Jacob, Israel is pursued by them, by their enemies, but saved by God. Like Israel, like Jacob, Israel is led by God towards the promised land. But like Jacob, uh, Israel was guided through all of their hardships, through all of their troubles that they faced. God never worked, ceased working for their good either. God was with them too. He kept his promises. And in the end, he will keep those promises again. In the new exodus, through Jesus Christ, who would die to save us. See, like all of the Old Testament, this passage again just points us so clearly to Jesus. Like Jacob, we too are all slaves. Slaves of sin. Like Jacob, we too have been called to be God's people. Like Jacob, we have been delivered through divine intervention. 
Like Jacob, we now experience every spiritual blessing in Christ. Like Jacob, we are led out towards the promised land, the land of heaven, where we will experience the fullness of God's blessing forever. What was that divine intervention? God sent his son into the world, the man Jesus Christ. Jesus who faced opposition like Jacob but never responded with deception or retaliation. Jesus who was also tempted with idols like Rachel and yet remained faithful to his father. Jesus who was obedient to God's call even to the point of death on the cross. Jesus who defeated the enemies of God sin and death and the devil. Jesus who was vindicated after his suffering through his resurrection from the dead. Jesus, our wonderful Saviour. Jesus, our risen Lord. Jesus, our Emmanuel. And God with us. Remember Jesus' promise uh, just after the Great Commission. Behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. How are you going to respond to the inevitable suffering that you're going to face in this life? When you face the opposition of family, when you're burdened by the temptations of sin, when you're tempted by the appeal of idols, when you're plagued with sickness or death, when people exploit you and your work, what are you going to do? Are you going to doubt the promises of God? Are you going to lose faith and give up on Jesus? Or are you going to be like Jacob? Have your faith strengthened in him. If we believe the scriptures, we must conclude that no matter what happens in this life, Jesus is with us. And if we believe it, we must think like it. We must speak like it. We must act like it. We must throw away our idols. We must keep our faith in Jesus as we journey towards that great and final fulfilment of the promises of God in the promised land of heaven. That is the place we look forward to of God's rich blessing for eternity.